Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who don't identify as either, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable. Our American episodes are coming to an end. There's one more after this. Friday's episode, I'll still be here. But next week, I'll be back in Ghana. I'm so excited. I'm very ready to go. I very much enjoyed my American adventure. I've probably stayed like a week too long. But there's still a couple things that I haven't had a chance to do yet. I still haven't been to the movies. There's nothing good playing. I wanted to go see The Equalizer, but it got out of theaters before I had a chance to go. I was going to go try to see the new Scorsese movie. It has terrible reviews and it's really long. I would go see it just to see it if it was like two hours and change, but three hours and change. I'm like, "Mm, I don't know. There's some other movie, The Freelancer. You know, I love a good action flick, but the reviews for that are absolutely horrible. I'm going to go see something just because I want the experience, but I hope it's, I hope the movie's not too bad. Um, and I need to go to Baltimore. I haven't had a crab cake egg roll since I've been back. I've had tons of crab. Crab cakes, crab dip, shrimp stuffed with crab, firecracker crab. I've had a whole bunch of crab. No crab legs. I'm not a big crab legs person. Too much work. And working on a day trip to go to all those like Gilded Age. I don't know if this one is Gilded Age. It might be a little later. But those Gilded Age castles. This one I think is from the early 1900s. The Gilded Age lasted, I think, up until the stock market crash. Or was it until the creation of the IRS? It's one of those. Anyway, there's this Gilded Age house. It's one of the biggest houses on the East Coast. It was owned by the DuPonts Winter Tour, I think is what it's called. I've been there before, years ago, like 2017, July 2017. I remember why I went. I'll tell that story one day, but not today. But they have a fashion exhibition for Anne Lowe. Anne Lowe is a very famous Black designer. I think probably her biggest work of art, by which I mean gown, was Jackie Kennedy's wedding dress. But her gowns are on display at this house, this museum in Delaware. So I think I might drive up before I leave to go see the gowns if I can fit it in. I figure I can drive up to Delaware and catch Baltimore on the way back and get my crab cake egg roll. I think this could be a good plan. We'll see. I did get a little bit of TV in this week. There's this Millie Vanilli documentary. I don't know if it got a lot of publicity. It came out over the summer and I was overseas and I didn't get a chance to watch it. I was like nine or 10 at the height of Millie Vanilli. I remember how big they were. I remember the words, or at least the chorus, to their biggest songs. And obviously I remember the story that they were lip syncing, but I didn't ever know, which I don't think most people did, like the real story of what happened. In this documentary, it's almost two hours. There's a lot of backstory and post story, if you will, after, you know, everything imploded for Millie Vanilli. I'm going to tell you what it is. There's spoilers. I don't feel bad giving them because it came out like three months ago, but I'm not going to tell you everything. It's worth watching the documentary if you want to see it for yourself. But in short, they were dancers, I want to say in Germany, and they had gained some popularity. They're like these two really attractive, very well-built Black guys. They were very conscious of creating an image, a way to stand out. So they went and got their hair braided. They were really good at marketing themselves, but as dancers. So this producer meets them and is taken with their appearance and is like, hey, we could do something with this. And also this producer 
which I didn't know until I watched this documentary. The same thing that he did with Millie Vanilli, he'd done with another group before them and also a group that was like a huge phenomenon, also a Black group. But the lead singer of that group was a hot guy. He wasn't actually a singer. It's another case where he found a really hot dancer and made the dancer the quote and unquote lead singer. And then someone else was doing the vocals. So he'd done it before. He'd gotten away with it. And so with Millie Vanilli, he did it again. He knew some great singers. He knew some great rappers. He knew how to put a great song together. So we'll put together all the music and you guys will just literally get on stage and perform it, but like lip sync it, which is a form of performance. There's some debate about whether Rob and Fab, i.e. Millie Vanilli, about whether they had any trepidation about it. They said that they signed a record deal that even though they were dancers, they had done demos because they wanted to be singers. And they had halfway decent voices. Like it was nowhere near the Millie Vanilli sound. By 80s, 90s standards, they weren't good singers. By current standards, they're better than some of what's on the radio right now. But Billy Vanilli says that they signed this record deal in order to be actual singers. And then after they signed, they found out that they just wanted them to basically be front people and that other people were going to sing. And they said that they pushed back against it. But under their contract, it was like, well, we've already given you front money. And then you've been staying out here on our dime while we put the record together for y'all. If you don't want to do it, okay. But then you'd have to pay us back all this money that we've already spent on you. They were in their early 20s. They said they were broke at the time. They were living in the project. And they were like, this was our way out. We were already broke. We didn't want to go further into debt. So we were like, okay, we'll do it. Nobody expected the song to go, I want to say number one in like 25 different countries. It becomes a worldwide hit. And then because it's such a hit, And making so much money, they're like, well, we can't just drop out now. So now we need an album. They create an album overseas that doesn't really do much. But because they're a worldwide hit, Arista Records, as in Clive Davis's Arista, Clive Davis of Whitney Houston and Aretha Franklin fame, signs Millie Vanilli. And they create an album that sells... I I heard the I heard the numbers in the documentary and I had to stop and rewind because I was like I'm sorry excuse me what they estimate in the documentary that that first album for Millie Vanilli it made 580 million American USD dollars and dineros one album their first US album sold six million copies and infamously won a Grammy award which is when everything falls apart because everyone's paying attention to them now and people started noticing. It was like, how are you singing and rapping in perfect English? But when you give interviews, you clearly don't speak English very well. And your speaking voices and your singing voices have like zero in common. And you never sing live. There were a couple instances where they were performing and they always had the tracks. But there were a couple instances where the track skipped or the track went on a loop or something, and the audience was able to figure out that they're lip syncing. So obviously musicians that worked with them had figured it out. Clive Davis says he had no clue what happened. They talked to three other execs from Arista and the manager who was assigned to work with them. The A&Rs were like, maybe six months or so before the Grammys, we kind of figured it out. But they're making so much money between the album sales and the tours. Everybody was just focused on the bottom line. They made all this money and had all this fame and also were high as shit. 
so they told their producer, if you want us to like keep up this ruse, then we need more money. I think the final straw was they went somewhere and asked for, I want to say $150,000 before they would go on for like some big performance. And they were like, if you don't pay us, then we're just going to go tell everyone that we're a lip sync act and the jig is up. The producer was like, we're bet. So he went and held a press conference and was like, hey, I'm the producer for Millie Vanilli. And I just want everyone to know that they've been lip syncing the whole time. They never sung not one note for any of their performances and not on their Grammy winning album. And I just felt like everyone needed to know because we've been dishonest. He looks like the whistleblower hero. It's a white dude, obviously. The record company claims we had no idea. We were duped as well. They perpetrated a fraud on us. And then Millie Vanilli takes the worldwide, I mean, literally worldwide backlash for lying to everybody. The producer goes on to do it again with yet another group after Millie Vanilli. The record company, I mean, Arista is still standing to this day. I had no association in my head with Arista and Millie Vanilli. The Grammys that let them lip sync, taking no shots, not that lasted, but Millie Vanilli, when you hear that name now, like to this day, like you think the black guys who lip sync the whole time. One of them, I always thought he committed suicide. I mean, maybe it's a form of suicide, but he had a really heavy drug addiction. Like he was doing crack at one time, the light-skinned one with the light eyes. He overdosed on drugs and alcohol in a hotel room. They said in the documentary, like he never recovered from... He had some childhood stuff too. He was adopted, but he never recovered from the fraud of it all with Millie Vanilli and then also for bearing the brunt of the blame from when everything hit the fan, just being left out to dry. Um, And then the money ran out and all of those things, but he said he never really recovered. The other guy, Fab, found a way to make peace with it. He's um father of four. I don't know if he's married, but he and his lady, white chick, if it matters, long-term relationship before kids. He's still performing. He sings one of the Millie Vanilli songs at the end. I think he's singing Blame It on the Rain. He's carrying a decent note. Like he's better than like Ray J and Jacquees and whoever else was at that horrible ass versus that time. Like he sounds better than all of them except Mario. It's a really crazy documentary. And as much as I just told you, I left like a ton of it out. They have interviews with the actual singers who were overshadowed. The crazy thing for me, though, watching this documentary is that if Millie Vanilli came out now, no one would care whether they were lip syncing or not. And maybe what happened with Millie Vanilli shifted the culture in the direction of where we are now, where music is much more about marketing and image than it is about actual music because just off the top of my head I won't be disrespectful but there's so many artists right now that are cute to look at but really of like no substance whatsoever don't write their own raps can barely hit a note their music is heavily produced auto-tuned whatever you want to call it but they're still very popular very lucrative performers And this is well known, so I'm not calling anybody out. But like Ashanti said that she used to sing most of J-Lo's stuff. Is J-Lo that different than Millie Vanilli? She's a dancer who was super marketable. She's not a terrible singer until you put her next to somebody who can actually blow. And then it's just like, eh, 
Like what they did, it was a scandal for the time because you're talking about time when you still have major Black singers like Luther and Patti LaBelle and Aretha Franklin and, I don't know, Peebo Bryson. I'm just thinking about all the people who were at the top of the charts at the time who could actually genuinely blow. And then you've got Millie Vanilli. And Millie Vanilli, if you actually listen to the actual singers on the track, like the isolated singing, dude could blow. I think the era of music that we're in right now, they would take a mediocre singer and they would just auto-tune it to death. To actually be his voice, it just wouldn't sound the same in concert. Rihanna. Rihanna's one of those too. And I'm a huge Rihanna fan. I take nothing against Rihanna. Rihanna's not the strongest singer. Rihanna's mostly marketing visuals. There was somebody else. What's the guy that sings Anniversary? I want to say it was the BET Awards. His mic didn't have the proper auto-tune on it and he sounded terrible. But he's supposed to be like this R&B crooner. Something anniversary. Every time I'm putting in anniversary and it comes up as Tony, Tony, Tony. What's the guy's name? I, I do this every time. You and me. Anniversary. Giveon. That's his name. Heartbreak anniversary. That's the name of the song. Millie Vanilli's ruse, whatever you want to call it, would be a non-factor in today's musical landscape. I feel like more often than not, the artists are mostly marketing and heavy, heavy, heavy production to make them sound halfway decent. A lot of folks just can't sing right now. They sound like me when I sing. You've heard me sing before. Ah, (laughs) we're not doing that today. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. We'll save good black news for next week. There's just a couple of things, but nothing's super, super big. I just want to do the big stories this week. Do you see this Kanye West story in the New York Times? It's a shit show. Adidas and Kanye West had a joint venture, Yeezy, for about 10 years. And it infamously came to an end when Kanye made a series of public anti-Semitic remarks. The New York Times did this expose on what really happened with Adidas and Yeezy. It says, for this article, 
the journalist interviewed current and former employees of Adidas and Kanye West and obtained hundreds of previously undisclosed internal records. <laughs> so literally, this article starts in 2013. It says the rapper and the sportswear brand had just agreed to become partners. The Adidas employees, thrilled to get started, had arrayed sneakers and fabric swatches on a long table near a mood board pinned with images. But nothing they showed that day at the company's German headquarters captioned the vision Mr. West had shared. To convey how offensive he considered the designs, he grabbed a sketch of a shoe and took a marker to the toe. He drew a swastika. The New York Times notes that two different people who were present at the meeting have corroborated that version of events. They point out that, you know, swastikas are very bad in general, but they're especially bad in Germany. They say, quote, the image was acutely sensitive for a company whose founder belonged to the Nazi party. And they were meeting just miles from Nuremberg, where leaders of the Third Reich were tried for crimes against humanity. Oh, dear. That encounter was a sign of what was to come during a collaboration that would break the boundaries of celebrity endorsement deals. I'm reading from the Times. It says sales of the shoes, Yeezys, would surpass $1 billion a year, lifting Adidas' bottom line and recapturing its cool. The Times reports that, quote, inside their partnership, the artists made anti-Semitic and sexually offensive comments, displayed erratic behavior, and issued ever-escalating demands. Adidas leaders, eager for profits, time and again abided his misconduct. It said, even as Mr. West voiced increasingly toxic beliefs privately and publicly, Adidas stepped up production and released Yeezys more frequently. Executive disregarded employee concerns that his troubling conduct risked tainting the brand's reputation. I'll tell you why I appreciate this article. And it's because I read it after I watched Millie Vanilli. But I just talked to you about how Millie Vanilli, like these two black guys who were literally voiceless, were scapegoated entirely for the fraud that was Millie Vanilli. Not the record companies, not the executives, not the producers, not the people that made that lion's share of $580 million off of their six times platinum album. The people who got paid the least and literally had the smallest voice, if any, in the whole scheme, who are the ones who got caught out there and took the blame. With Adidas and Kanye West, publicly, until this article, it seemed like Kanye's always said very wild, controversial things. It's part of brand Ye, brand Kanye. Adidas knew in that sense that doing erratic things, saying wild shit is part of what Ye did. And they signed on and that's fine. But when he started saying anti-Semitic shit, and they waited a long time after he started saying it publicly to distance themselves. And from the outside looking in, it's almost like Adidas tried to offer grace and compassion. It was clear to people that Kanye was dealing with mental illness of some form. And it looked like Adidas was recognizing it and didn't want to punish the mental illness. But this New York Times piece makes it really, really clear that Adidas knew he was on some bullshit from the start and was like, well, we're going to keep making these billions though, right? Okay. Like if your first meeting, somebody picks up a shoe and draws a swastika on it, 
whether you're in Germany, America, or anywhere else in the world, you know what the fuck you're dealing with. And they kept dealing with it so everybody could get paid. And there's more to it than just the swastika stuff. I read through this article and I was like, yo, what kind of contract did these people sign to work at Adidas where they don't have a whole bunch of legal nightmares from the staff? Where the entire staff that had to work with Yeezy didn't do some sort of like class action lawsuit for workplace harassment, something. We're going to go through some of the biggest allegations. In addition to drawing the swastika on a shoe, West later advised a Jewish Adidas manager to kiss a picture of Hitler every day. The idea was to practice unconditional love and grace. He also told a member of the Adidas executive board that he paid a seven-figure settlement to one of his own senior employees who accused West of repeatedly praising the architect of the Holocaust, i.e. Hitler. He was often in conflict with Adidas executives. When they told him no or didn't move fast enough, he would sometimes do things like hurl shoes around the room. They said Mr. West showed pornography to Adidas employees and he chose porn actresses to appear in Yeezy promotional photos. They said in the midst of his partnership with Adidas, he had a meltdown. They said a friend went to his house and they found he was consumed with paranoid thoughts, including government agents were out to get him. I'm still reading this from the New York Times. The friend and former trainer describes West was writing Bible verses and drawing spaceships on bedsheets with a Sharpie. The trainer encouraged West to come to a nearby office he owned. He said Mr. West emerged with suitcases packed with pots, pans, and Tupperware. At one point, Adidas had created a Yeezy unit. So Yeezy is under Adidas, but they're operating separately. They'd assigned a specific staff to work for Yeezy Team, as they called it. The team adopted a strategy it likened to firefighting, rotating people on and off the front lines of dealing with the artist. Adidas also assigned a human resources official specifically to the Yeezy unit and gave each new hire a subscription to a meditation app and gathered the staff regularly for something akin to group therapy. What the fuck was he saying to these people? How the hell are these people not suing Adidas? What kind of contract do they have? Mr. West told some of his Adidas colleagues that he admired Hitler's command of propaganda, viewing him as a master marketer. I have thoughts on that. I'm not trying to be canceled, so I'll keep them to myself. I will say this. There is an entire exhibit at the Imperial War Museum in London about Hitler and the Nazis. It's like three or four floors. There is an entire large section devoted to Hitler's marketing. So Kanye saying it is really fucked up, especially given the context of his other anti-Semitic remarks. But what he said isn't untrue. Nazi propaganda was just that, propaganda. And unfortunately, it worked. They had a well-thought-out, well-funded, well-planned marketing campaign. Oh, at one point, according to Mr. West Adidas Handlers, is how they're credited. The album that was named Ye, Kanye had wanted to call Hitler. Adidas had to talk him out of it. This is insane. 
So in short, the only reason that Adidas cut ties with him is because he started being anti-Semitic in public. Behind the scenes, it didn't seem to be a big deal because he was making so much money. I remember this part of the story. He said he was going to go, quote, Death Con 3 on Jewish people. And then he did the Drink Champs podcast. The New York Times describes he spread conspiracy theories about Jews controlling the levers of power and then taunted. New York Times calls it taunted. I can say anti-Semitic things and Adidas can't drop me. Now what? And that's when politician, Hollywood corporate heads, fellow entertainers, and Jewish leaders condemned the comments, saying his behavior emboldened others to embrace bigotry. And then nine days later, after a huge public outcry, that's when Adidas severed ties with him. And their public statement was, quote, Ye's recent comments and actions have been unacceptable, hateful, and dangerous. And they violate the company's values of diversity, inclusion, mutual respect, and fairness. This is after they'd been listening and tolerating and encouraging, I would say, his anti-Semitic rants internally for almost a decade. Hmm. There is a class action suit. It was filed in April, but it's not by the employees. It's by shareholders. Shareholders accused Adidas executives of, of failing to disclose the risk a toxic partnership posed to the company. And in an internal letter reported by Rolling Stone, some employees charged that the leadership had known about Mr. West's problematic behavior and turned their moral compass off. In a statement to the Times, Adidas denied the claims and pledged to fight it. The company said that an internal investigation had not substantiated the most serious complaints in the employee's letter, including anti-Semitic remarks, discrimination and harassment, and the display of pornographic materials, aside from a 2022 incident captured on video. Jesus. They also point out that even as they squared off an arbitration, Adidas and Mr. West came to an agreement that served their common interest. In May, Adidas began releasing the remaining inventory of Yeezys, the shoes took in about $437 million in sales through June. He makes money. People will put up with a whole lot of shit as long as there's money on the line. We didn't talk about Keith Lee down in Atlanta causing a goddamn ruckus. If you are not familiar with Keith Lee, don't feel embarrassed. I didn't know who he was until yesterday. I'd seen something about Keith Lee. I didn't know who he was. The name didn't ring a bell. And then I saw something else. Milk and Honey responds to Keith Lee. There is a Milk and Honey, actually more than one, here in the DMV. I don't know if that one is affiliated with the ones in Atlanta. Milk and Honey, Atlanta, put up this video of a family sitting on a couch. They look real posh, real bougie. The mother and father are trying to figure out who is Keith Lee. And the daughter, young girl, is like, you don't know who Keith Lee is, daddy? And he's like, no, who is Keith Lee? It's clearly a skit. It's clearly, by the tone, meant to be dismissive of whoever this Keith Lee person is. The daughter, who's like, you know, of the TikTok generation, addicted to her phone, she knows who he is. But the parent, based on their portrayal in this video, 
are well-to-do, moneyed, connected, and they're just like, who is this Keith Lee person? He's not of any significance. They don't know who he is. So I see the video and I'm like, who the fuck is Keith Lee? Like, he's clearly somebody because this restaurant has chosen to address him. But who the fuck is he? So that's how I end up going down the Keith Lee rabbit hole. I find him on Instagram and he's got like a million followers. He's this guy. He used to be a professional fighter. He does reviews of black restaurants. He likes himself some soul food, no judgment. And he goes and visits restaurants all over the country and he gives his reviews. Most of the reviews that I've seen, and I haven't watched a bunch of them. I just looked at the ones that he's done for Atlanta and then a couple others that he has pinned on the top of his page on Instagram. He ranks the restaurant for the overall experience. So everything like the food, the customer service, the wait time, he ranks the food on a scale of one to 10. Most of the reviews that I've seen him do, and again, I only watch six or seven of them, but people, other people I know who who follow him more consistently say that this is representative of, of how he does reviews. He literally just says, like, I went to this place. Here are the things that I ordered. He shows you pictures of the food. He eats the food in front of you. And then he says what he thinks. This is a little salty. This is really delicious. It's just a really basic, honest assessment. He doesn't have, like, formal food training. He's not a chef. He is a man with his family. And they all need to eat. And so they eat a lot of food and they tell people whether they like it or not, which works for me. The average person that goes into a restaurant and orders a meal is not a food critic. They are people who are hungry that that want to put something tasty in their belly. He's kind of like a male version of Tabitha, if you will. Tabitha's original claim to fame, and I would still say it's at the core of her brand, is talking about vegan food. She she would go around to different places and she would review vegan food. Her big break was sitting in her car, much like this guy, reviewing a vegan sandwich. Her review went viral. It convinced meat eaters to be like, well, what the hell is this lady eating that she's so excited about? So many people went, I want to say it was the Whole Foods, to get this sandwich that Tabitha was raving about that she ends up with the contract at Whole Foods to talk about their vegan food. This guy is very similar. He he is a meat eater. He's also very positive. The way that Milk and Honey responded to him in this video, like, who is Keith Lee? And the number of comments that were clowning the restaurant for their response. Like, it was something like 4,000 when I saw it. And I was like, all this over a restaurant review? When I found Keith Lee... I expected to find a series of videos of this man just dragging the food. I thought it was going to be an old nasty Nessa girl, you know, funky Dineva when he gets real riled up. I thought it was going to be something like that. The man is so, he's got this monotone voice. He's very even tempered. Most of the things that I saw him personally review. Sometimes he has family members reviews. Sometimes they can be a little harder on things. But everything that I saw him review from Atlanta, I want to say like the lowest I saw him give anything, I want to say was maybe like a 7.5. Most of what he said was very constructive. 
He makes a point to say, you know, this, these are my opinions of this food. I've come to this place. This is what I thought. This is what my family thought. But you should come to this place. You should form opinions of your own. Because of his massive following, when he goes to a place, especially when he says something is really good, some restaurants he notes that they have really good food, but they have really not so great marketing. So he goes to the place, he'll do, he'll do a review, and if the food is great, places go from having like five people in the middle of the day to being rammed and packed out and nobody can get in. So he could definitely be a blessing to your establishment if you have good food, if you have good service. He can help you out with the marketing. And he likes to do that for places. Also, I should note, I found him on Instagram and he has 1 million followers. When I started talking about him on Facebook, people were like, oh no, his big platform is TikTok. He has 14 million over there. What? I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't know who he was. I'm mad that nobody at this restaurant, before they put up this snarky video, I'm mad that they were hearing the man's name enough times that they made a video trying to dismiss him as being insignificant. If his name keeps coming up in your customer's mouths, he is of significance. But even beyond that, they should have done just basic due diligence and Googled the man to see how many followers he had on Instagram because a million is enough to shut your mouth. But then 14 million is not somebody who you really want to go against. Keith Lee, he put up a video earlier today. I'm recording this on Tuesday where the owners of... Remember I told you there's a milk and honey and a real milk and honey Atlanta? The owners of the other milk and honey reached out to Keith Lee and was like, hey, can you like specify that you're talking about not our milk and honey, but the other milk and honey? Because our mentions and our DMs have been crazy for the last 24 hours and people are even sending us death threats because of your videos, which Keith Lee, people always call him by his first and last name. Keith Lee was like, hey, this is not what my brand is. I don't condone death threats. I don't condone leaving these people negative reviews or harassing the owners or staff. I've given my opinion of my, and I'm sharing my experience when I went to a venue. Don't hate these people. Don't harass these people. And definitely don't send death threats to these people. That's not what my brand is about. And you're not supporting me by basically acting a donkey. Who is Keith Lee? A mofo that can change the trajectory of your business with a single post. So Keith Lee has gone down to Atlanta. He's been eating, I think, mostly takeout at many restaurants. Um, I think the family just prefers takeout. It's him, his wife, at least two small children, and either his mother or the wife's mother. At the beginning of every video, he shows the bags of food and he tells you how much he paid for it. And he says, well, you know, this was for five people. The two, three, four biggest things that he's exposed about the restaurants that he's gone to. The food is salty. The wait times are ridiculous. Getting takeout food is a nightmare. The customer service is lacking. And... And restaurants have these arbitrary rules that he finds frustrating. And again, he hasn't dragged the restaurants. He's gone to different places. He's talked about his experiences. One of the places that he went to, because people recognize him, he's got at least 15 million followers across just these two platforms. I don't even know if he's on Facebook and what that is. But people recognize him. So sometimes he sends family members into the restaurant to try to secure a table to see how they're treated. So he went to 
one place. It was Candy's place. Um, Old Lady Gang. I've heard not so great things about this restaurant for years between the food and the service. But again, I haven't been. But he sent in, I think his wife and either the mother or mother-in-law. And they were told the wait was an hour and a half. He was like, what? So he goes in and they recognize him. And they were like, oh, we can get you seated in five minutes. And he was like, hey, no, like we are all God's children. I don't want special treatment. I'm not a celebrity. I am a hungry father, husband, son, and I just want to get some food, but I don't want special treatment. There was another restaurant he went to. Is it Toast? I've been to that one. I wrote about that one when I was on the Odyssey. That was some of the best and craziest customer service ever. Whole different story. But he said they were trying to get takeaway. And he said a couple people recognized him. He said there were two different cars of women. And he said one of them was waiting to, I think, go into the restaurant. And she'd been waiting an hour and a half. And then somebody else was trying to get takeaway. And she'd been waiting over an hour too. He was like, I want to be served. I do want food from here. But the table that you were going to offer me, I want the young ladies who've been waiting an hour and a half for a table. Can you give that table to them instead? And this woman who's been waiting for her food, I want her to get her food before me. I don't want celebrity treatment. I just really want to eat. The restaurant did that. He said the staff was very courteous. They were very nice about it. But he was like, I just didn't really appreciate that you see who you deem a celebrity and you treat them different than the people who are coming to your, your business every day, like your core clientele. He's in the city for a couple of days and then he goes back home. These people live here and will be regular patrons of your restaurant, but you're not treating them well. He also went to... I don't know if he posted the rules for milk and honey or or he talked about milk and honey and then other people went and posted the rules. But this restaurant has a whole list of rules for you to dine in their establishment. And it's not even like dress code type stuff, at least not what I saw. But it's like no modifications to any of the menu items. If you have a food allergy, please choose another item without the allergen. No table hibernation. That's what they call anything over 90 minutes. They say 90 minutes max. Others have to eat too. If we prepared your selected item to our menu specifications, we will not remove the items from your bill. Our entrees are not samples. No parties larger than four on days that end in Y. They said we have no waiting area inside. Keep in mind, if you're on the wait list, you can receive a text when your table is ready. Naps in your car are fine. Some of this strikes me as the businesses are very popular and don't have the space or the staff to accommodate the amount of clientele that they're receiving. I don't work in the restaurant industry. I don't know what the solve is for that. I'm sure they're not the first or only restaurant to have it. Yeah, it's it's a mess. So he's shared literally his experience in a very nice, kindly, God-oriented, have a blessed and beautiful day type of way. And people who watched his reviews, who live in Atlanta especially, or visited Atlanta recently, um, have taken what he said and been like, oh, this applies here, 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 here. Like they're calling out all the restaurants for poor service, for overpriced food, for long wait times, for everything. There seems to be a lot wrong with the Atlanta restaurant scene. I will also say this. There's a lot of Atlanta natives who are just like, hey, 
hey, just like put all of this in perspective. You came from out of town and you're going to all these pop-up new restaurants that are celebrity owned or Instagram famous. They're becoming representative of the Atlanta food scene. There's so many more places that if you'd ask locals, we don't go there. Like we go where there's good food and there's good service and there aren't crazy weights. We don't just go to the popular spots, the celebrity spots, the new spots, the it spots. We have our own restaurants that if you'd asked, we would have sent you there as opposed to like these places that you're going that because you have so many followers, people think now this is what Atlanta food scene is like. And like, yes, there are places that are like this, but it's not everywhere. Search for Keith Lee on Instagram. His page will come up. And then also all the pages talking about his page and talking about Atlanta will come up. It's a it's a clusterfuck. It's a huge clusterfuck. But entertaining. I'll give it that. Last but not least, I want to talk about Jada Pinkett Smith and the final chapters. Last but not least, I want to talk about Jada Pinkett Smith and the final chapters of Worthy. Pages 304 until the ending. This is our fourth installment talking about Jada's book. I do give spoilers when I do recaps of Jada's book. So if you've been listening thus far and you do not want spoilers for for Jada's book, this would be a great time for you to to log off. You should you should stop listening. You should push pause. Like like now. I'll wait. Okay, here we go. This chapter, Jada talks about, well, she talks about a lot of things, but one of them is her separation from Will. In the previous portion of the book that we discussed, she had talked about a lot of her frustrations with their relationship within their marriage and things just weren't working. So now she's trying some different approaches. Neither one of them believe in divorce. She stated that a bunch of times. They're trying to figure out ways to be together and to make their relationship work. They did have an understanding of sorts. Jada makes a point to say that, quote, talk of our open marriage was somewhat misleading because it wasn't the free for all it sounded like. But the term became an easy explanation for much more complicated issues going on between us in that era. She talks about what it's like. You know, Will is this huge movie star. He works away on sets. He's with a bunch of very beautiful people. People are constantly throwing themselves at him. She was like, I was honest about who I was married to and what our lifestyles were. She said, especially for him being this huge star, she said, quote, I knew for myself what it felt like to walk into a room and being the one with all that attention. I also knew how seductive that energy could be. It's overwhelmingly intoxicating. And to be blunt, certain work environments are conducive to a certain level of intimacy and time shared. We had already run across a few situations that made me want to come up with a proactive solution to protect the sanctity of our trust. She said the solution then was to create an agreement to help build that trust by which we would never be in a position to lie to each other. She says the agreement was never, you can go sleep with whomever you want, whenever you want. Instead, it was, hey, when those temptations are in play, 
Let's trust each other to come together in partnership with the truth, talk, and work as partners through them. In this way, we eliminate any possibility of betrayal. I appreciate that she addressed that just because talk of their open marriage was something that came up over and over and over. She talks about the death of her father. At one point, he was in really bad shape and she invited him to come out to L.A. and she got him into a treatment program. He did the program for a while. He got himself together and then he fell back into addiction again. He went back to rehab once again. He went back to rehab another time, um, but he kept using. And Jada decided that he should go back to Baltimore. She said, quote, there comes a moment when you have to let go and let God. The pain of confronting a parent's addiction yet again was too much. I felt like continuing to pay for care and lifestyle would only enable Rob's addiction. It's never easy for the child of an addict to understand how to create healthy boundaries, when to step up and when to step away. This confusion made me even angrier. He was still in L.A. It was before arrangements could could be made for him to go back to Baltimore. She said she got a call from her brother saying that her father was dead. Jada goes on. She talks about finding herself back in depression. Do you remember at the beginning of the book? I mean, literally like the opening scene, she's driving around trying to find a cliff to drive off of because she wants to kill herself. It takes us literally to page 324 before we circle back to the beginning of the book. It's like she explains her whole life for 324 pages. And how all the things that have happened to her from career to marriage to children to death of people that she cared about, frustrations in her marriage, frustrations with herself. And that's how she gets to the point that she literally wants to like drive off of a cliff. She says one of her friends checked on her and said, you seem heavy. And she said, I wanted to say, I'm just going through something, but I'll be okay. But I couldn't because I didn't know if that was true. Over the next month, I came to the conclusion that I would never be okay. She says that she drove up and down this road trying to find the right angle to kill herself without it looking intentional. And she finally chose a spot. She pulled over and looked down. And all she had to do was decide when to carry through. Poor thing. With the plan. You know, the other day, like I I was driving home from somewhere. I have this Usher playlist on title that I listen to nonstop. And for whatever reason, like I was just like, okay, enough Usher. And I put on this Adele playlist. I started the playlist when she released the last album that was about her divorce. And I played that album on repeat over and over and over and over. My two favorite songs were the one about drinking wine, which I drank a whole lot of wine during that time. It was the middle of COVID. And then I think it's the last song on the album. It's the one where she keeps belting out how she tried. And I would listen to that, usually half drunk, and cry and cry and cry and cry. I don't know. Like the other day, I just put on the Adele playlist and I wasn't even like in a bad mood or anything. Like I really just wanted something other than Usher, but then also something that I could 
just sing along to. Like I love to like sing at the top of my lungs when I'm driving home. I listened to Adele the other day and I cried then too. I wasn't crying because I was sad anymore. I felt sad for like how sad that I used to be. Like I was so, so, so sad for like, it started with the green to do the show, but maybe like 2013 until 2000, I started to come out of it in 2021. But I was so, so, so sad for so long. And I remember like what Jada's talking about here, wanting to like drive her car off a cliff. It's a suicidal ideation. I used to do it. There was a church, maybe like four blocks from my house in Brooklyn. So maybe like off Nostrand or Franklin, it might've been Franklin, but there was this church on the left-hand side. But every time I would pull up to the light, I would like fantasize about just like revving the engine and and driving like full speed into the front of the church and wrecking my car and hoping I killed myself in the process. It's not logical. It sounds crazy because it is. I was clearly unwell. This was around like 2016, 17 when like the ideations got really, really bad. And I knew in the moment I was losing it. I just didn't know what to do about it. But like, I don't know. That's why I kind of like choked up like reading this portion of Jada's book. And here's like probably the crazier thing. When I finally got out of that situation and I would talk to people about like, you know, what was going on in my head and like me being depressed and like the sciatica and the shingles and like all of that shit. I would say it to people and they'd be like, girl, me too. What? There's a ton of people out here who are in the middle of like severe depression, having suicidal ideations, and you would never look at them and think anything was wrong. This portion of Jada's book where she talks about falling apart and and the ways that she went seeking to pull herself back together, it's probably the, the reason that I keep singing the praises of this book. Again, So much of this book has been marketed about like, oh, it's about her husband. It's about her marriage or it's about Tupac. But really, it's so much about literally what the title is. This woman on a journey to feel like she's worthy and how for so much of her life she didn't. And the decisions that she made out of her unworthiness. And then how she is in the process finishing the book. I don't think she's there, but how she got in the process of being on the journey to worthy and being on the journey is half the battle. At least you ain't, you know, just driving around thinking about how to kill yourself. So yeah. So she realizes that everything's a fucking mess. She decides to give herself one last shot. She goes to see a medicine woman and gets a, I don't know how to describe it. And I didn't underline how she describes it. Essentially she goes, and gets real, real high. It's an ancient ceremony. I want to say Native American. Folks have been doing it for years. The medicine woman guides her on a spiritual journey through her high. So she's not just high, just floating in the wilderness. She's, she's doing a guided high. But she says that this helps her immensely. She also says the very beginning of the book, like, hey, just because I did this doesn't mean you go do this. And also, like, I did this under doctor's orders and supervision with a professional practitioner of getting high in this way. Don't go try this shit at home. 
And she didn't go just smoke weed. Like, I mean, people do self-medicate in various ways. Whatever she went and took with the medicine woman is much different than even like your grade A special good shit that you could get from your, you know, local distributor. And I want you to just be like, well, Jada Pinkett Smith got high and felt better. No, 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 no. There's more to it. She also did this like a three-day ceremony. She also gets high with, um, (laughs) it's a ceremony, but still it is what it is. She gets high with Trey, Will's oldest baby. I mean, not in this process, but but they get high as like a family now. And I was like, okay, whatever works for y'all. She says, while she was high, she had this revelation. This is page 332. She says, suddenly it hits me. My whole ordeal has been one of my own making. I've been taunting myself with false beliefs about my life and who I am. I can't remember. Because, you know, I, I read like a ton of self-help books. I can't remember the one that I read that was... Maybe it's the one that I shared the other day. The Jen Cicero book. I think it's hers, actually. It was talking about the narratives that we create about our lives and who we are. When someone asks you, like, oh, describe yourself. Like, the narrative that you choose to share is just that. It's a narrative. You're not giving every single detail of, like, how your life has played out. There are chosen stories that you feel are representative of you. And that's the story that you share with people because that's how you want to be seen. You could totally take an entirely different set of stories that are all honest and true and also share that with somebody and it would give a totally different impression. So you have to think about like, what is the narrative of you that you've created and also recognize you can also change that. You could choose to create a new story. That's what I got from that little portion. After Jada gets high, she says that she has this new deep willingness to live. And she said she starts to remember herself in her late teens and early 20s, hoping one day to, quote, live the dream, being at the threshold of possibility, feeling free and alive. And I think I underline that part because one of the ways that I came out of my depression, dark place started to feel like myself is I tried to remember like a time in my life where I felt like the possibilities were endless because that's how I wanted to feel. And I remembered feeling that way in my early 20s. And I started consciously making decisions about my life from that point of view. Not the person who's been through all this shit, who's made all these personal mistakes, very public mistakes. Like I fully recognize that in some way I'm going to be branded as a reality star and a divorcee and people will always use that to cut me down in some way when they want to just, you know, bring me down a notch. Fully aware of that. And sometimes I feel like I go through life trying to avoid being cut with that. And I do things smaller than I should. That's how I felt. And sometimes feel, even now, a lot of times. And I make decisions based on that. From a place of fear versus a place of optimism and hope. So I started making decisions based on, like, the 22-year-old me. I'd been hurt. I'd been humiliated. Nobody makes it to adulthood unscathed. But I hadn't had the big things that just sort of level you. The things that make you timid or make you scared. Yet. But I just thought it was interesting that in order to like refine herself, she had to go back to the same age I did to realign 
I don't know, get back on track to be the person that she was meant to be, essentially. She talks about Willow's fearlessness. Um, She doesn't make the connection that Willow gets a lot of her shit from her. She talks about she and Willow go on this hike. She said they're walking on this trail, this narrow trail, and there is a choppy sea called the Queen's Bath below. Willow looks at it and she says, I wonder what it would feel like to jump off of here. This is Jada. She says, my brain does a double take. I glance over the ridge on my right side, shake my head, look away, and then, oh shit. Next thing I know, Willow, moving with feline energy and speed, goes flying off the edge, vanishing out of my sight. I run to the cliff just in time to see that she's barely cleared the rocks to make it into the churning ocean. Oh my God, what the fuck? That's your child. Didn't your ass climb up on a roof drunk and jump off of it into the pool? Yelling, Will, I love you. That's your child. (laughs) Willow is you. She talks a little more about Will. And she's starting to be repetitive at this point. But she's trying to explain their separation she lays it out like really early on in the book. Like I look like I have everything. I look like I have the perfect family, the perfect husband, the perfect life. And so I guess she feels, I mean, and it is a memoir. Um, she feels like she has to over explain to people what went wrong and why she wasn't happy. She says here, Will and I had pictures in our mind of what a happily married couple was and our pictures didn't match. She said, I had chosen the discomfort of staying in my early marriage over destroying our family and the community we had created. I was smart enough to admit I was too immature to launch a legal battle without creating a bloodbath. Lawyers would have taken advantage of my emotional state, made sure they got a big check, and left me in deep regret. Will and I had our problems, but what we had at the core deserved better than legal warfare. She said, at the end of 2016, they decided to separate in every way except legally. She said, we didn't believe we owed the public any specifics, which was without a doubt a slippery slope. The pitfall for me in this plan, and I stepped right into it, was believing I was involved enough to manage this alternative approach to ending our marriage. The pseudo guru, who uses rationale and borrowed wisdom to tell you what you want to hear, insisted that because of my nearly four years of plant medicine work and spiritual growth, this decision was elevated and correct. Oh, what fools we mortals be. The reckoning was to come. So she talks about in the next chapter. This is where the book starts to get a little weird. She she quotes um, the book. Women who run with wolves many times. In this book, there's the concept of red shoes. And when Jada wants to talk about something that is very difficult, she uses these illusions or metaphors that come from other people's works to talk about her feeling instead of just actually talking about what the fuck it is. So she uses this metaphor of red shoes to talk about her affair with August Alsina. So she says, so after Will and I separated, I put on my red shoes and fell into an entanglement. Instead of just saying, after Will and I separated, I started fucking this young dude. It has to be, I put on my red shoes. Ma'am, 
She does state for the record, she says, my partner in the entanglement, entanglee, if you will, she never calls August by name. She says, was not, as it would be said a lot, my son's best friend. She is forthcoming. She says, when we met, he was not shy about expressing how he was suffering from depression, unresolved grief, and later issues with his health. I wanted to help. And since we both had suffered enormous amounts of loss, we met there. This is how a friendship unfolded that much later and very unexpectedly turned romantic. I could read you like the three or four paragraphs that she talks about this, but it literally makes no sense. Like she's talking about it almost like it happened to someone else. Like she was outside herself when it happened. And maybe that's how she feels. But I'm like, but ma'am, like, but you did do it and it did happen. And like, it's, it's not the end of earth, but like own it. Especially in a memoir, she doesn't give any major details about it. Literally, she talks about it on page, the last part of 349 and page 350. I don't know. Maybe she's trying not to get sued. Like, I don't, I don't know. Um, She goes on to say that all of us have chapters in our life we wish we could erase. Those are the moments that if they didn't kill us, made us stronger. I'm like, well, this is many pages later. She talks about the red table sit down with she and Will. So after August tells the world, like, yeah, me and Jada Pinkett Smith had a thing. Everybody was like, you sound crazy. You're lying. And he's like, I'm not. I'm really not. It actually happened. Jada and Will put out a statement acknowledging that it happened. And then Jada says, well, I need to bring myself to the red table. She says of her decision to do so, I was not willing to allow someone else's narrative to put a shroud of shame around me. She decides that she's going to do this red table talk and she tells Will and she says, by his own choice, without any prompt or request from me, he decided to join me at the table. She says, frankly, I was surprised, pleasantly so, considering we weren't together and given where we were sitting in our relationship at that time, that was unexpected. But he suggested that he did not want me to go to the table alone. That seemed to me to be a powerful offering in line with our attention to be more of a united front. In our life partnership, spiritual partnership, we don't know what the hell this is yet partnership. We weren't quite fully united, but we were working on it. So she says they do this conversation. It's very late in the night. She and Will had planned to leave for a family event. It's what she calls it the next day. They end up recording late at night. And she said midway through the conversation, she felt the conversation beginning to turn. She says, quote, Will had been free as a bird for the last four years, living his life on his own terms. He seemed to convey that he had been done wrong. She said, my reference at having an entanglement, he sternly reframed it with a laugh as a relationship. She said it came across as if all of this had been a secret to him when that wasn't true. He made it seem that he had somehow found out about my relationship as if I had not told him about it. She says, I should have stopped the conversation, but instead my habit of self-betrayal overwhelmed me and I swallowed my own voice. 
I resigned and abandoned the purpose of why I had come to the table in the first place to tell my truth and to show how we were in partnership and working through being separated, but not divorced. So it seems like Jada wanted to tell everyone that they were separated, had been separated and were still separated at the time of her entanglement with August and also when they were sitting at the table. She said, it was clear that Will and I were no longer in alignment, that the train had gone off the track. She says, but I didn't want to oppose Will publicly. So I took the blame and played the pleasing and appeasing role I knew so well. She also said, uh, this trauma reaction, the one where she just basically shuts up and plays nice and gives in to Will, was an old friend I thought I'd kick to the curb but clearly it could still be activated when I was in fear of being abandoned or not feeling protected. She said, I wonder if Will is feeling the same way. It was hard to tell with him sitting there with his tired, watery, weepy eyes. She says, to be fair, Will's eyes water all the time. She put all in caps and it was very late. So this was pre-recorded. It wasn't live. When it came time to post the Red Table conversation, she said she could have decided against it. Her production team, one of them said, you're giving the message that it's all on you and that's not true. You're going to take a big hit for this. And Jada said, it's my mess, so it's my hit to take. She also says, so she puts it out, obviously. And she says, once everything had settled, She said, I had to sit with my feelings of genuine hurt and betrayal. Even if part of that betrayal was on me, it felt unfair. The loneliness that soon set in was excruciating. She says the reason she put it out, she says, a part of me was willing to be torched by public opinion as a path to discovering my authentic value in the embers of what remained. If I could survive telling the truth while also taking the brunt of a lie, I think that's Will's part, I could finally let go of all the pictures that I thought defined my worth. I knew as painful as the journey would be, this was my opportunity to let go of self-judgment without which other people's judgment has no power. With this, I would truly be free. She also tells this part, and look, ever since she's been on promo tour, I've said of Jada Pinkett Smith, I'm like, look, if she and Will want to be separated, they don't want to get divorced. That's their business. It's their marriage. They'll figure it out or they won't. Like they seem to want to be together because they're together. She tells this story on page 368 about this dream that she had. She's thinking about the red table talk. She feels like Will threw her under the bus. And she says, in the dream, I called Will and said, Why did you do that to me? Why would you ever do that to me? And she says, in the dream, Will waited patiently and finally replied, the bigger question is why would you do that to yourself? If it's your show, you didn't have to put it out. She says, all of a sudden, my arms bulged into huge muscles and my entire body burst into the form of a grotesque werewolf. And I snatched Will by the top of his head through the phone receiver and delivered us both into a setting of a dark forest under a full moon. As a gray, grotesque werewolf, I stood over him at ten feet tall, panting and salivating, staring him down. He started to speak, and within seconds, my claws ripped him to shreds. And then I devoured him. 
I howled to the moon with blood dripping from my jaws, and then I looked to the ground to find the one thing that was left of him, a bloody severed index finger. I took my grotesque werewolf foot and kicked his index finger over a canyon through the moonlit sky. I abruptly woke up. At first startled, I had to ask myself, what the hell was that? Then I had to chuckle. Why'd I have to kick his finger over the canyon like that? Yo, they need to, they need a divorce. <laughs> Let the lawyers take what the lawyers have to take. She hates this nigga. <laughs> she hates him. You're you're having dreams where you envision killing him. Ma'am, God is trying to tell you something. Leave. Both of y'all need to go find peace. I don't think it's with each other. The rest of the book is mostly about her going on a spiritual journey. She tries out a bunch of different religions, a bunch of different philosophies in her search for peace. She talks about her first experiences with alopecia, clumps of her hair falling out. And then she talks, I told you before, there's only 403 pages of this book. On page 387, she talks about the Oscars. She heard what Chris Rock said. She saw Will go up on stage. She saw Will swing an open palm. And she thought Chris Rock ducked the shot. She said from where she was sitting and the way Will was positioned, she never saw the hand actually connect with the face. And then Chris Rock famously took the hit. Will Smith's a big nigga. And Chris Rock is not a big nigga. And Will Smith smacked the shit out of him. And Chris Rock didn't go down. But Jada says she didn't realize that the whole thing wasn't a skit. She said they've been sitting there. She said Will had had been getting up out of his seat and going backstage for a good portion of the show. She was like, I didn't think anything of it. She said it wasn't until Will got back to his seat and said, keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth and then repeats it that I perceived the gravity of the situation and that no, it had not been a skit. Even so, I am unclear on the reason why Will is so upset. We had been living separate lives and were there as family, not as husband and wife. But when I hear Will yell wife in the chaos of the moment, an eternal shift of, oh shit, I am his wife, happens instantly. Man, did you did you forget you were married? <laughs> Which, okay, so we talked about this before on here. Jada gave the quote, about how she was confused by Will Smith would call her his wife. And I talked about it and I was like, I have to go read this book because I keep hearing these these random sound bites out of context and I need to understand why she's saying these things because I'm surprised that the man that I'm married to, even if I'm separated from him, calls me wife, sounds crazy to me. But then when she gives the context of, we've been going through all this shit We lived in separate houses, like, for years. And then we think of each other as family. Like, he got his own things going on. I got my own things going on. We think of each other as family, not husband and wife. And then suddenly this man is calling me wife. Like, yeah, I am his wife, but we don't act like husband and wife. So what what is he throwing wife around for? In context, I get it. She also says the craziest thing about the whole evening, she wasn't even planning to come, (laughs) which I was like, do you understand the scandal that it would have been in Hollywood 
if Will had come to the Oscars without his wife and no justifiable reason why Jada wasn't there? Like, is she alive? Yes. Is she sick? No. Where is she? I don't know. What you mean you don't know where your wife is? Is she at home? Maybe. Is your home her home? No. What? It would have been insane. But yes, you weren't even planning to come and you were like, all right, let me do you this solid so we don't have to answer these questions about separation and blah, 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 since clearly you don't want people to know. And then I actually come to the event with you as like your homie plus one. And then this shit happens? Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. She says, when Will asked me to accompany him to the various award shows in early 2022, culminating with the Oscars in March, I was pleasantly surprised. For every special moment in our lives together, we have been there for each other. I welcome the gift of this opportunity and the continuation of our bond in that way. After all, we were now at six years of not living together as a married couple, but still legally married. However, our movement back into therapy and his invitation for me to be at his side for award season told me we weren't ready to give everything up just yet. We still had an inexplicable connection, an attachment that we didn't want to let go, that couldn't let go. So my answer was, of course. So there we were, sitting at the Oscars, living out Will's belief that King Richard, with six nominations, including Best Picture and Best Actor for Will, was going to make history. And as the world is our witness, we did make history, only not quite how we thought. She also says that Chris Rock, she said he made a claim that Jada had called him and asked him not to do the awards. Remember, there was Oscar So White and Chris Rock was the host. He said Jada called him and asked him not to do it. She said that never happened. So Chris Rock lied. She also talks about, I think, do we mention this on here? About how she and Will, there were rumors of them getting divorced. And she said, at one point, Chris Rock called and asked me on a date. Once he found out I wasn't divorced, we laughed. He apologized profusely and life went on. I wish some of this commentary had come out when when the slap happened. Because Will caught it really, really, really bad. Especially from white folks. They were like, oh my God, he's a monster. And I was like, he's Will Smith. He had a moment. Like, calm, calm the fuck down. Had you told people at the time... The Chris Rock, who has known Will Smith for, at this point, at least 30 years. But say this happened 10 ago. But you know this man. You've worked with this man. You've gotten checks together with this man. Because they were on Fresh Prince together back in the 90s. You heard that they were separated, still married. You called this man's wife and asked her out. And you know Will knows about this shit. It explains so much more about why Will would get on the stage and slap the shit out this man. It does. Jada goes on to say, she says, the plot twist here that many people don't know is there's been decades of disrespect between Will and Chris. And starting in the late 1980s, before either of them even knew I existed. Like many old beasts, it began with a big old misunderstanding that I don't have enough therapists or lawyers to begin to explain. And it just kept festering. I respect that Jada knows the whole story here, clearly. This is either Chris's story or Will's story to tell. She doesn't tell it in her book. I do want to know all about this beef that goes back to 1980s, but it's not her story to tell, so she skips over it. She tells her tea. She doesn't tell other people's tea. I respect it. She tells a lot of her tea. She doesn't tell all the tea. You've been separated from Will Smith for six years, and the only person you dated was August Delcina. Who else you date, sis? It's not our business. 
I'm just nosy. But it ain't just August. Come now. She says of her eye roll, her infamous eye roll at the Oscars, that was not some sort of dog whistle to Will to like go fetch or, or attack or whatever. She says, my eye roll was me reacting authentically and simply being human. I didn't feel like faking it anymore because really, Chris, we got to go through this again. She said the vitriol in the coming days did come faster and more fiercely than I predicted. Blaming the woman is nothing new. And I was clear on that. It was easy to spin the story of how the perfect Hollywood megastar had fallen to his demise because of his imperfect wife. The patriarchy depends on pinning on pinning the downfall of humanity on poor Eve. She continues, I have to point out when a man, any man, commits a displeasing act, how bizarre it is that a woman can be fully to blame. How is it that a woman can be so irrelevant and culpable at the same time? It's absolutely mind-boggling and quite a fascinating ride. She said, I also had to chuckle at the idea that the world would think I wielded that amount of control over Will Smith. I've always wondered if Jada was aware of one, all the vitriol against her, and then two, of where it all stems from. Like, it's much more than just August Alsina. Like, it started with Red Table Talk. I've told you my theory about Silent Wives and how once Jada started talking, the tide turned. The same thing happened with um, Aisha, Steph's wife. She was like the dream girl, ideal And then she started having opinions and shit. And people were like, oh, fuck you. We hate you. Fuck her. She's a downfall. Leave her. They don't yell it as loud about Aisha as they do about Jada. Aisha stopped talking. That's part of it. But she still hasn't been quote unquote redeemed. Women don't really get redemption. Once they hate you, they just hate you. But I always wondered if Jada understood how she sort of functions as a tool to support misogyny. Not necessarily that she's done anything so terribly wrong. How for a lot of men, she's just a tool to assert misogyny. Tool, is tool the right word? Maybe she's a place to unload their misogyny. She said Chris came to her after the slap. Because remember, like he gets slapped and then he stays on stage and goes ahead and announces, I think, best documentary. And she said, while the clips played and Will is still sitting there in in the seat, he comes down the stage and he says to Jada, Jada, honestly, I meant no harm. She says, Will barked back at Chris once again. And she said to Chris, I can't right now, Chris. All of this is about some old shit, which I was like, what? I was like, all of this happened while we were watching, but couldn't see. If you recall, like Will was never asked to leave. Will sat there. For the entire Oscars, even winning and taking the stage. She says at the next commercial break, Will's publicist came over and they informed Will that Chris had left the building and was not going to press charges. And Jada turns around and says, press charges for what? Oh, God. (laughs) She said, I had missed that Will had, in fact, made contact with Chris, who had not, as I thought, ducked. She said, I looked at Will in shock. I said, you actually hit Chris? She said, Will nodded and said, yes. (laughs) Yo, this is bizarre. This is bizarre. So she said, they're sitting there. She said, everybody's coming over to speak to Will. She was like, and so she's sitting there trying to process all this happened because she really didn't know that Will actually hit him. 
She said, one of the first people to say something to me was Lupita Nyong'o, who was sitting right behind me. She said she leaned in and asked, are you all right, Jada? I'm so sorry. (laughs) Much respect to Lupita. She's never given an interview about this. When Will is yelling, keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth, like Lupita is all in the shot. She's got facial expressions, like she's confused. She's in shock. Lupita is all of us. People have asked Lupita what she thought over the years, and she's always sidestepped the question. She also says of Will, she says, I can't tell his story of why he did what he did, but I can tell you it had everything to do with Will's own personal battles, which unfolded on the world stage. She continues, what I knew for the first time in six years since our breakup was that I would stand with him in this storm as his wife. I would not abandon him, nor would I fight his fight for him like I had tried to do so many times in the past. This fight was his. She said that she knew how bad the backlash was going to be. She said, I knew that people who once proclaimed love for Will would turn their back on him. I knew how that felt, and I knew he didn't. That's a lot of love. I don't think she gets credit. Not even I think. She doesn't get credit enough especially given their situation at the time that all happened for sticking by him because she felt thrown under the bus by what he did to her, what she allowed him to do, and then putting it out. Red Table Talk, which we just spoke about. Like, she felt very betrayed by him during that moment. And then when this happens to him, she uses how she felt, how people turned on her, But she uses the knowledge that she learned from how he betrayed her to support him now that he needed her. That's that's love. That's love. I don't know if I'm capable of that. I'm a cancer. We petty as fuck. That's love. It's beautiful, actually. It really is. She also goes on to say, the only thing I can guarantee regarding Will, she says, I wasn't going to leave his side. We came together, so we're leaving together. This is page 399. She goes on to talk about the slap, and she tries to make it, to me, she she tries to reframe it, to me, as something deeper than it was. She starts calling it the holy slap and how it helped her to walk hand in hand with Will. And she says to be a torch of love for him until he could find his own torch. Sure, all right. Like, if if that brought y'all closer together, so be it. But yeah, that's um that's the book. She has another short chapter after that where she starts sort of talking in that weird third person shit again. I'm, like she just tries to make everything sound deeper than like it really is. I had to be willing to change. I had to be willing to suffer. I had to be willing to let go. I had to be willing to confront the shadows of my fear and I had to be willing to love. Like, I mean, all right. Like she just gets real like, I don't know, lofty about shit. She and Will go get high together and she tells him, this is literally like the, this is 403. The book ends at 405. She says to Will, you are the king of my heart. She says, Will's eyes lit up as if he were allowing his heart to blossom unexpectedly. unexpectedly. Then he told me that I was a queen of his heart. Let me correct. She says, you are a king of my heart. And then he says back to her that, She is a queen of his heart. After a pause, he laughed, still staring into my eyes and added, 
you'll have to cut off your spirit's wrist to break free of our divine handcuffs. And I was like, okay, now I feel like I'm reading a romance novel. Like, all right, whatever. Jada's parting advice is, my hope is that you will recognize that every piece of your journey is to lead you to your own crown. I hope you will discover your own magic, your own power, your self-love. My hope is that you'll find the golden threads to weave the inner kingdom that supports the making of your chosen. I'm done. I'm not doing this. Okay. Um, it's 98% of this book is really wonderful. It's this when Jada gets like super lofty and starts like writing like a romance author that I'm just like, okay, I can't. I'm done. But that concludes our recap of Jada Pinkett Smith's Worthy. I gave you a bunch of it. I didn't give you all of it. I didn't even give you all of the good parts. So if you read it, I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to know what you think. I clearly loved it. And if you haven't read it, like, are you interested in reading it? Are you still like, hell no? Or are you like, hmm, I think I'll pick up a copy. So that is the pod for this week. We're super long. So we'll be back on Friday with new stuff. And then the stuff we didn't talk about today. Okay, bye.